Morning, Emmanuel. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 5 through 7, but we're going to uh, take a break from that for a week to look at Ephesians 4. And uh, as we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at all that Christ commands his people, all that he commands his church. Ephesians 4 shows us how all of those commands work their way out into the body, beyond just sermons, just beyond preaching, but really into every dynamic in the body of Christ as we interact with each other. Really what we've been learning in the Sermon on the Mount is what we're to be using to disciple one another. So we're going to look for a minute at Ephesians chapter 4. If the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Bible is leaven or yeast, Ephesians 4 describes the process by which that yeast gets out into all the dough, every part of the church, every individual in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll be reading from verse 7 to verse 16. If you're new to Emmanuel, this is a passage that has been foundational to how we work. It's been foundational to how we conceive of doing church uh, together. So I really am excited this morning to uh, share it with you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, I have seen this passage shape a people for two decades, and even as I just get to hear of so many people caring for little Lucy Farthing and so many people caring 
for Andy Bryant, it's an example of how this passage is working out in the life of Emmanuel. We pray, Lord God, that this would happen more and more, that Emmanuel would not be a church with a few ministers, but that every member would be a minister on the front lines of gospel ministry. We pray that you do this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanna start by telling you a little bit about how this sermon was born. This particular sermon has an origin story, and so I wanna tell you about it. This past October, our pastors and deacons uh, had our annual leadership retreat, and we spent a couple of hours, a couple of times actually during that retreat having open-ended discussions. Uh, one of those discussions was about evangelism, and I'll tell you a little bit about that at some point in the message. But the other discussion was just about something we called doing ministry at a time and in a culture where it seems like you can't assume anything anymore. Even simply in the 20 years that I've been a pastor of Emmanuel, I've noticed this trend grow that increasingly you're dealing with people where you can't assume even the basics of doctrinal life or a vision of Christian faithfulness, you're really dealing from the ground up very, very often. Not, not you, of course, but there are other people like that who uh, there's so many things that you can't assume. And uh, in the middle of that uh, situation where there's so many people where you can't assume things, it really uh, becomes imperative that we, we just teach from the ground up on every single issue. Let me give you just a few examples of this, of how, how bad the situation is. Uh, one, one example would be that I, I, read a re, a, uh, I read a research uh, study done recently. It was commissioned by Ligonier uh, Ministries, uh, by Lifeway Ministries. So that's a Presbyterian group asking a Baptist group to do some research. And uh, in the middle of all of this research, the conclusion they came to was something like 55% of evangelicals would affirm the statement, Jesus was a great teacher and not God. Now we're not talking about your neighbors who aren't Christians. Of course, we'd expect that kind of an answer from Neighbors who don't, we know that our neighbors more and more don't receive Christ, don't go to church, aren't getting any kind of Christian instruction. But the majority, according to that study, was saying that those who identified as evangelicals, and here's what they meant by evangelicals, believed the Bible, believed the cross was all you needed for salvation, attended church multiple times a month, claimed to be born again, that kind of thing. Among that group of people, the majority were clueless as to actually who Jesus was. Now what was interesting is they had other questions in the survey and one of them was, do you affirm that God made men and women? And the whole culture answered at about 77%, yep, we believe God made men and women, so despite the different trends in our culture, three out of four people just out on the street not necessarily Christians, said, we believe God made men and women. Evangelicals, 99% of evangelicals said, yes, we believe that God made men and women. So we're nailing it, we're killing it, 
Everyone got an A on the test, which means that evangelicals are conservative heretics who understand something of God's creation of the world and then utterly misunderstand who Jesus is, who made the world. And we, as pastors, are, are ministering, and we ourselves are, people ministering to, to coming out of that world. It's not like you and I aren't affected by the world that we're being saved out of. In fact, the Bible tells us that unless we are consciously transformed by the renewing of our minds, then we will be squeezed into the molds that the world presents before us. So we were talking about doing gospel ministry in a culture where you can't assume anything. And one of the things we decided as we were going through that is from time to time, I would break off from my regular sermon series and try to address some of these areas where it seems like we might be losing very important distinctives, very important convictions that we must not lose. And this morning I want to talk to you about one of those issues that I fear can no longer be assumed but must be reclaimed. And it's not a doctrinal one, it's a very practical one. The truth I want to reclaim is this. The ministry of the church belongs to all of God's people and not just to the pastors. The ministry of the church belongs to all of God's people and not just to the pastors. Now this has actually been a truth that the church has not always done a good job understanding. You've had difference between the laity and the monks, between the clergy and the man in the pew, and it's been hard for the church to really and truly believe and embrace that a church like Emmanuel is not a church with say 10 or 15 ministers and then 600, 700 members, but rather, Emmanuel is a church with about a dozen ministers who equip and hundreds who are called to be on the front lines of gospel ministry. There is simply no way we will meet the challenges of this hour and this time in our culture and our church without all hands on deck. There's no room for anyone riding the pine, for anyone being on the bench, for anyone being sidelined. It's vital that the entire people of God be mobilized for the ministry of God at all times, but especially this time in church history. And so what I wanna do this morning is I want to follow the example of J.O. Frazier. J.O. Frazier, who was J.O. Frazier? Well, he was a missionary from Great Britain to the Lisu people of China. From Great Britain to, missionary, to the Lisu people of China, and he was a brilliant man. Uh, Frazier uh, was not uh, some church sloughing off their worst guy to go overseas. He was an example of the church ascending one of her finest. Uh, he was an engineer by training and a concert pianist uh, in terms of his skill level in music. He was a man who based both mastered math and music. Uh, 
I haven't done either of those things, but he's that kind of a guy. An engineer and a musician. And he headed out to serve in 1908. And he had some initial success among the Lisu. He saw some Lisu people come to Christ. He saw some Lisu people get rid of their idols. And then fairly shortly after that, fairly shortly after that, um, we can pray for the another one suffering this morning. Um, <laughs> fairly shortly after that, after watching some initial, if you want to return to my story, um, fairly shortly after um, his time of seeing some initial success in the conversion of the Lisu, he saw all the people he'd led to the Lord fall away. And he went through a time of real discouragement and despair. Now, meanwhile, uh, J.O. Frazier had a prayer group back home in England. It was his mom and her pastor and some other people who were part of his prayer group. And during this time of really trying to get his head back on his shoulders and getting back out of this depression, he wrote a letter to this prayer group. And the letter he wrote went like this. He wrote to his mom and her pastor in this little living room prayer group, I will not labor this point, he said. You will see from what I'm saying that I am not just asking you to give help in prayer as a sort of sideline. I am trying to roll the main responsibility of this prayer warfare on you. I want you to take the burden of this people upon your shoulders. I want you to wrestle for God for them. So. Frazier's response to his own failure was to put the responsibility entirely on someone else. Not in the sense that he wasn't responsible, like he didn't have to act the part of a missionary, but that he recognized that it was going to take more than himself as a preacher to do this work. It was going to take the work of the entire people of God. But I'm not just doing this in the realm of prayer this morning. I'm trying to say to you that I'm trying to roll onto you the entire ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church. That the primary ministers of Emmanuel Baptist Church are you. That when there are problems at the church, they are ultimately, no, not exclusively, your problems. That when there are needs in the body, that is ultimately God's calling on your life to meet those needs. There's no walking down the hallway and seeing someone in trouble and going, man, I hope a pastor does something about that. But rather, what Ephesians 4 is going to teach us is that the ministry of the gospel in the church is the ministry of the gospel of the church, that it belongs to the entire people of God, and pastors play an important but by no stretch of the imagination, exclusive role in that ministry. So what I'm saying is that certainly pastors equip, certainly pastors strengthen, certainly pastors lead. The Bible uses words like manage. The, the Bible uses words like set an example. But the Bible does not speak about the ministry of the leaders that is simply foreign to the way the Bible speaks. Rather, it speaks about the ministry of equipping and then the ministry of the equipped. 
And so let me point out to you a number of things from this passage that help us to see that this ministry is yours. You're like, man, I joined here a few years ago. I had no idea that this is where, where you were going. This is where we're going. Th this is what the scriptures teach, and there's no way for us to hold together unless every person who joins Emmanuel catches this vision. First, Jesus has gifted you and called you to the ministry of building up the church. Jesus has gifted and called you to the ministry of building up the church. Notice verse seven. The Apostle Paul has just been emphasizing the unity of the church in verse six. We have one God, one Father of all. We have one baptism, one Lord. We are unified. And then in verse seven, he emphasizes not unity, but diversity. And he says this. He says in verse seven, the grace was given to each one of us, all of us, every single individual, every single individual in the church, the 14-year-old who just got baptized, the elderly person who knows most of their life is behind them. Each one of us, every single last believer, we're told here, was given, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now you might say, I knew that, Ryan. Every Christian got grace, right? That's why we were saved, we all got grace, I get it. But the context is clearly not about how we're each saved by grace. The context is clearly talking about how we're each given a grace gift. We're each given gifts of grace in the body of Christ to serve. You go and read the context, it's gonna talk about the gifts of leadership, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and then it's gonna go on to say all of us are to be speaking the truth in love. So when Paul says each of us was given a gift by grace, he's not just saying we're all saved by grace, he's saying each of us have been given grace gifts with which to serve one another. And let me just give you a few other times he mentions this in the New Testament. You can see the similarities. You'll be able to hear the similarities in the way Paul speaks here in Ephesians and the way he speaks elsewhere. So in Romans chapter 12, verse six, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Here it again, it's that sort of diversity in grace gifts. Having gifts that differ, Paul says, According to the grace given to us, let us use them. We've all been given different grace gifts. Let's all use them. There's nobody, there's no room on the sidelines. There's no understudies in the people of God. There's only people playing leading and central roles in the drama of God's redemption, putting Christ on display. And then I'll read you another verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a little fuller here, but same idea. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, and the word is charismata, and charis means grace, but charismata is this idea of grace gifts. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So here's the idea again. Over and over and over, Paul speaks about grace gifts that every believer has received to serve the body of 
Christ. Now, I got the chance, one more thing that led to this sermon was a Friday morning, I went to the pastoral apprenticeship. I had no idea who was preaching next or what they were preaching on. And it turned out to be our brother Moses Babatunde. And he preached this great sermon on this very passage. So I told Moses, it's not plagiarism if you tell him what you're doing. And, uh, and just kidding. But I did borrow from Moses because it was so good what he, what he shared. And one of the things he shared that was so helpful was that the fact that these are gifts of grace means that you don't earn them. You don't read your Bible enough to be useful enough. You don't get born into the right family. You don't need a particular privilege in order to be useful. Not only does the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives, but the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus gifts of God's grace to be used in the service of the church are given to them, and they are given not by works, not by earning them, not by training, not by going to a conference, not by going to a seminary, not by going to a Sunday school. They are gifts of grace which God gives to his body so that we can all, no matter how sinful we've been, be useful for the service of his church. You may think to yourself, I don't know what I've got in my life that would make me useful to anyone else. Here's what you've got, grace. And not only the grace that saves you, but the grace that gives you gifts so that you are actually useful and even needed for the advance of God's kingdom in the world. So, after affirming that we all have gifts, Paul does something very different than he normally does. Normally, when Paul speaks about gifts, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, normally what Paul goes on to do is then to give a list of all the gifts that all the different people have. So in Romans, he mentions prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. First Corinthians, he mentions wisdom, knowledge, faith, healings, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. In those two passages, he walks through the gifts of grace that are found throughout the body. Here in Ephesians, he doesn't do that. Here in Ephesians, he walks through the gifts that God gives to the leadership of the church. That's what he spells out. He spells out the gifts he gives to the leadership, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, but his whole point, his whole point is for us to see how their ministry is meant to equip our ministry. Do you see that there in the text? In Ephesians chapter four, he says this, and he gave the apostles, this is verse 11, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to do what? To equip the saints. Now if you hear saints from a Catholic perspective, you'll get all messed up here. In the Catholic Church, a saint is one who the Pope and the Vatican has voted on and approved as having done miracles and having stood out for exemplary piety and good works. In the Bible, a saint is a Christian. In the Bible, all of God's people are saints. The word simply means holy one, and when God's Holy Spirit is given to you, you become a holy one. 
Not once you really nailed it for 10 years, or not once you like did a superpower awesome Christian life for a whole lifetime, but simply by believing, the Bible calls you a saint. That is why at the start of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's all of them. And his point here in going to the apostles and the prophets and the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists is to say all of these teachers exist for one reason, to equip the saints, not the laity, not the ordinary Christian, not the man in the pew, the saints, the holy ones of God. The teachers have been given spiritual gifts to equip everyone to use the diverse gifts of grace they have been given. So I'm just doing the J.O. Frazier. I'm rolling the whole ministry onto you. And it's not because I had a bad week and I'm just needing a little relief. It's because the Bible shows this. It's because the Bible reveals this. It's because this is the way the church is laid out in the scriptures. Second, and I didn't have a bad week, by the way, but anyway, uh, Jesus, here's the second point, has gifted you for major league ministry. For major league ministry. I want to be clear that I'm speaking to all the members of Emmanuel Baptist Church, from the youngest child who's been baptized, to former elders who are no longer elders, to guys who've never done the pastoral apprenticeship and never want to. I'm talking to all of Emmanuel. I want you to see that Jesus is calling you not to second string ministry, not to JV ministry. He's calling you to start in the big game, not play around in the Pro Bowl. He is calling you to the ministry, you. The front line of building up the church and conquering the demons is given to all the saints. Now, notice what your ministry is meant to accomplish and how long it's to endure. Look at that in verse 12, sorry, in verse 11. He gave us the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What ministry? For building up the body of Christ. Who builds up the body of Christ? All the saints. The equipped saints build the body of Christ. This is not the preachers are going to go do the little work and we're going to keep you busy in the sandbox over here building sandcastles that don't matter. This is the main event is given to God's people. What, what does it mean to build up the body of Christ? Well, it's to be done until, verse 13, we all attain the unity of the faith. When you get saved, you have a basic idea, Jesus died for sins, but there's a lot more to learn, isn't there? And we want to grow into the unity of the faith and, Paul goes on, the knowledge of the Son of God. Do you see that? We are to be building up the knowledge of the Son of God all the way to mature manhood. Now, I think the process of seeing kids go from being babies to being mature men is a pretty amazing thing. 
Babies are cute but useless, right? Like they're really cute. I mean, their heads are too big. Their arms can barely get over their heads. They have these adorable eyes that occupy way too much real estate in the center of their face. Their legs are so small, their body buckles under them. They just can't do anything. I mean, thankfully, they're adorable, so it's fun to dote on them and enjoy them and coo and caw at them, but you can't leave a baby alone and expect them to produce enough money to provide for a family. It's just not the way it works. In order for that to happen, they have to grow. They have to grow through puberty. They have to come into full adult mental comprehension and physical ability. And that's the image being used here of the church. New Christians are awesome too, but they're a little useless as well sometimes. They, they often are super cute, and then they make big messes sometimes as well. But the goal is for each of the individual Christians in the body and the church together to actually begin to walk on two feet, to walk upright, to be able to bear weight, to bear responsibility, and to actually demonstrate a mature manhood that is best described in two words, Jesus Christ. It's the full mature manhood of being able to walk, talk, act, and display Jesus Christ. That's what we're going. We're not aiming to be a nursery for forever babies. We're aiming to be a family where adults are raised. We always thought like this as Christy and I, I mean, we loved our cute little kids, that's super fun, but we like them becoming independent adults. We're not going for failure to thrive. We're aiming for they can actually stand on their own two feet, have a discussion, and pay their own bills. That's, the, that's what we're aiming for. And the same thing is happening in the church is we're going for brand new baby Christians who become mature men and women who can feed other mature men and women. They don't just watch as other people notice immaturity, they own immaturity and move towards it to help bring about maturity. That's the goal. That's the responsibility of every single saint. It is the responsibility of the saints to teach the faith. It is the responsibility of the saints to teach the knowledge of Christ. It is the responsibility of the saints to bring about maturity in the people of God. That's your responsibility. It's your responsibility, if you've covenanted together with this church, to help that happen with these people with the people next to you, with the people in this room, to make sure and to care for and attend to their continual maturity. Now this brings me to something I wanna just address for a minute, and that's that have you ever noticed that Jesus' ministry had both public ministry and personal ministry? You ever notice that? Sometimes he preached the Sermon on the Mount to a crowd. Other times uh, he spoke to four or 5,000 people that needed his teaching and some food to be made for them. But there was also his time with the woman at the well, just one woman getting his personal attention. 
or answering the questions of Nicodemus by night or on a walk with the 12 to Jerusalem or heading up a mountain with just two or three. Which part of Jesus' ministry was more important? The preaching or the more personal? It's just a bad question. It's just a loaded question. They were both equally important. But preaching, for as high of you as you want to have of it, and I got a pretty high one, has certain things it can't do. If I say to a whole congregation, I know you've had five husbands. It's not really effective, is it? What Jesus was doing was the woman of the well as he was addressing her particular sins, her particular needs, her particular misunderstandings. And the result was he made a world-class evangelist who won all kinds of Samaritans to Christ and actually become the background for millions of sermons after that. But that ministry can't be done from the pulpit, which means that there are many evangelists that aren't going to be formed from the pulpit. And there are many Christians who need to be comforted, counseled, cared for. They need all of the truths that get proclaimed from the pulpit to be applied to them personally. In fact, some of you could even do, and I don't want to say anything negative about the preaching ministry, but, but sometimes there's even a, a need to even preemptively go to someone who's just heard a sermon. You're like, you know what? I know that person's going to hear that sermon this way, and I need to run up to them and remind them of, of another corresponding truth. I remember once there was a woman here at Emmanuel who was just totally sick, totally sick, barely could get out of bed for many, many years. And, uh, and I was preaching a sermon on how we all need to serve and everyone needs to get involved doing something. And I just walked up to her before the sermon. I said, this one's not for you. And, and, and why? Not because we can really actually not be under God's word, but because an awareness of where that was going to hit her personally, as opposed to what needed to be said publicly. You follow what I'm saying? Now, don't be running around telling everyone that one's not for you all the time. But, but, but you, get, you get the point. You, you, you get the point. And I actually want to belabor this. I want to belabor this. I want you to understand that you are called, I'm rolling this onto you, not because I had a neat idea for how to increase the church's effectiveness, but because Jesus knows how to order his church. I'm rolling this on to you because we need to understand that we're called to very intensive, highly skilled ministry, all of us. And I love to illustrate this by going to 2 Thessalonians. So go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And I want to read you a passage, and I want you to see how careful, how skilled, how diagnostic, how healing the ministry of the whole church can be. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, 
The Apostle Paul starts, we ask you brothers. Now, who's he talking about when he talks about the brothers? He's talking about all the brothers and all the sisters. The ESV will even say, he's talking about brothers and the sisters. Okay, so he's talking to everybody. He's talking to the saints, talking to the Christians, not talking to the pastors. Now, he does start off talking about the pastors, but he doesn't, not talking to them. So he says, verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now he's about to say some of the most wonderful verses about every member ministry, but notice he doesn't do it in a way that sidelines the role of pastors. Sometimes people get really into the whole body needs to serve, the real ministry is the people of God, and all of a sudden pastors are sidelined. The Bible never is so imbalanced. There's a real ministry of leadership, it ought to be respected, it ought to be esteemed, it ought to be prayed for, it's important, it's equipping, but it's not everything. And then notice how he goes on. He says, and we urge you, this is verse 14, brothers, who's he talking to? Everybody, the saints, people of God. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, here's what I love about this passage. Notice that Paul expects the ordinary Christian to be able to discern that there are different problems with different people. Not all Christians have the same problem. Some are idle. Some are faint-hearted, some are weak. Nobody gets better quick, that's why you have to be patient with them all. And then he also expects them to know not only are there different ways people can go wrong in their spiritual lives, but we need different cures, different cordials, different balms, different prescriptions, depending on where we're at. We are to admonish the idol, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Now that's interesting, and I'm just gonna tell you something. I've only ever heard this sermon preached on once, this passage preached on once, and I'll tell you where it was. It was at a pastor's gathering where pastors were being told they needed to know their sheep so well that they could tell the difference between where people were at and know the appropriate cure for each person. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Is that actually something only pastors need to hear? No, it's being rolled over onto the whole people of God. Now think about if you get this wrong, right? Let's say there's someone laying in bed. You know of a Christian who's laying in bed, or make it a little easier, they cannot get off the couch. They're just stuck on the couch, and they're just, they can't move. They're absolutely at a standstill in their life. Okay, why? I don't know. Could be one of three reasons. Could be lazy, right? That's one of the reasons people don't get out of bed. Proverbs talks about those people. Lazy, idle, won't do their own work, can't get out of bed. The other is faint-hearted. They've been through so much suffering, so much difficulty. They're like the Israelites. When Moses brought them hope, they couldn't even believe what Moses was teaching them because they were just so crushed by their oppression. They were faint-hearted. It could be they're too sick to get out of bed. They're weak. 
They're actually weak. Now, what happens if you misdiagnose? Medical doctors should be able to answer this. What happens if you misdiagnose a person? You know, how well does it go when you exhort the weak? Get out of bed! I broke my legs. Or what about encouraging the lazy? It's okay, brother. We're all justified by faith. Oh, good. Right? There needs to, this is expected of the average believer. I hate that term, but just for the sake of illustration, this is what the, the ordinary saint is called to. Someone's in bed. I don't know why, let's find out. You're gonna have to ask a few questions. You're gonna have to sit there long enough to figure something out. You're gonna have to get to know them. And then you're gonna have to diagnose. I think we have a two-thirds laziness with a little bit of lack of faint-heartedness. And so I'm gonna have to bring in a little bit of encouragement here, and I'm gonna have to give a swift kick in the pants to the glory of God to get this lazy person out of bed and into the job market. And this is not being given to us as the ministry of the pastors. This is being given to us, parents, as what you raise your kids for. This is being given to us, saints, as what we're all called to. The, the fact that about a dozen pastors can't meet all the needs of this congregation is not a bug, it's a feature. It's the way it's meant to be. Whether the church is 30 or 3,000, the goal is that the whole people of God are equipped to make wise decisions about one another's spiritual lives and to apply good counsel, comforts, or even chastisements at times to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, I'm not even gonna to get to the last point, but I'm gonna assume we can assume it a little bit. Why do we have apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers? Why do we have, David Wells says, all these men have this in common. They're all truth brokers. They're all men who bring truth. Why are they there? They're there because the main instrument of our ministry is the truth of God's word. The main instrument of every child of God's ministry is the truth of God's word. That's why the passage will end with the phrase in Ephesians chapter four that we are to, verse 15, be speaking the truth in love. Not speaking the truth in condemnation, not speaking the truth abstractly and philosophically, but speaking the truth in love is how we help other people grow up. Where do we learn the truth? And where do we see speaking it in love modeled? It ought to be from the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Now, I've felt for many years that one of those five is very neglected. We often will think, we need to think more about apostles and prophets, but one that's often neglected is that apparently 
there are evangelists in the body of Christ who, when they preach, equip others to be evangelists. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached twice every Sunday, and his second sermon of the, of, the, of the day all the time was an evangelistic sermon. He was not only equipping others to, be, to grow in their faith, he was equipping them to be evangelists. Well, we thought a little bit about this, and one of the things we're going to do in the coming months is try to offer more situations where evangelists at Emmanuel are teaching so that there's more equipping of those who would do better in their evangelism. One example of that is gonna be that starting February 25th through March 31st, uh, Pastor Danny Trevino, who's a very gifted evangelist, is going to be going through Christianity Explained from nine to 9.55. You can use that in two ways. You can just attend and watch Danny explain the gospel simply and clearly for your own equipping and evangelism, but you can also bring an unbeliever with you just knowing that every single Sunday a clear gospel message will be presented during the Sunday school hour. And because uh, Cody Farthing is smart and high tech, there's a little invitation card that doesn't have the times on it but has a QR code so that it will always be worth, it'll always work even when times of these things being taught changes. If we have something on a Saturday night or a Sunday night or a Sunday school time, if you just look at the QR code, it'll go somewhere on our webpage that tells us when we're doing evangelistic teaching, when you could invite a friend to hear the gospel, when you could also be equipped for evangelism yourself. And so that's our hope, is that you might make use of those times, not only to be equipped for evangelism yourself, but also to bring unbelievers to hear the gospel presented maybe in a way that is more its focus than when I'm preaching on Sunday morning. Let me say two more things and then I'll, I'll sit down. How does what I'm saying affect how you come to church? How does what I'm saying affect how you come to church? So I'm saying the ministry is yours. I'm saying that when I'm preaching, I'm not doing the ministry, I'm equipping for the ministry. And that the primary ministry happens, if you will, after the sermon is done being preached. So how do you approach Sunday mornings? How do you approach the whole rest of the week? How do we think about this time? Here's what I would say. You need to think about every Sunday the fact that you are a soldier going into war and you're gonna get your head blown off if you do not listen to the battle instructions. It's watching a war movie. I heard the other day that uh, the sign of middle-aged men is that you have to either uh, learn to smoke meat or become a fan of World War II history. And I was sitting on my couch eating some brisket I'd made watching a World War II movie. <laughs> and I was like, I have arrived. <laughs> and in this particular movie, they had gathered all the pilots who were going to head over German airspace to bomb German bomb production to hopefully uh, destabilize and eradicate the threat of the Nazis. And can you imagine if the men sitting in this briefing room about to fly over 
all the bombs of the Germans were sleeping. Had stayed up too late last night to actually focus as they were told how they were gonna fly over enemy territory. You would think, what a band of, not a band of brothers, a band of fools. We need to be a people who are listening to God's word like our lives depended on it. And not just this, not just like our lives depended on it, but the lives of other people depended on it. Do you realize that if you do not get equipped for ministry, other people may suffer and spiritually die? Would you want to go to a surgeon that had slept through his classes? Would you, would you want to receive care for someone who didn't listen when they were equipped to be Come a servant of God's? In the Proverbs, there's this amazing verse. This verse haunts me. He who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. What does it mean? It means that the guy who doesn't carefully tighten the bolts when he puts the tire back on your car is a brother to the car bomber. They both have the same result your car in the ditch on the side of the road. The brother who's slack in his work, the person who's slack in his work is a brother to the one who intentionally destroys. The nurse who does not pay attention to what drug is going in the IV is a sister to the drug dealer who sells street fentanyl. Why? They both create overdoses. The, the, the result is the same. When you come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and don't listen, not just for I need to be encouraged, but I need to be equipped, you are setting yourself up not to be able to help others. You go, well, people don't even ask me for help. Yeah, your life has made it abundantly clear you're not even worth asking. Which means that your sin of omission has made you a liability to the body of Christ a danger to the body of Christ, a destroyer among the body of Christ. Versus a person who comes in and goes, these are the words I will need for my friends, my GCG, my D group, the people I'm having over this week, the people I'm gonna interact with this Sunday, these are the words I need for my life and theirs. I'm gonna suck as much of it I can up so that I'm equipped, so that the people that I go to church with, church with won't be children tossed to and fro by every wind and wave in doctrine, but they'll be mature men and women who help me stand and who I help stand. If you're walking through a manual going, you know, we need more of this, we need more of that, where do you think it's gonna come from? the people of God being equipped by the word of God to bring it to others. And that brings me to the last thing I'm gonna say and I'll say it quickly and then sit down. How does this affect how you look at other Christians? You know, one of the things that's, re the easiest way to use increased doctrinal knowledge is critique, right? 
That's the first thing that happens to all of us when we learn more than the next guy. Hey, he doesn't know what I know, and he's not doing what I just learned we're supposed to do. What a noob. <laughs> what we're supposed to get from increased doctrinal knowledge and increased clarity in what the Christian life is supposed to look like is equipping tools that are supposed to be used. Doctrinal knowledge is more like an oar that you're being handed so you can start rowing. It's more like medicine you're being handed so that you can start healing. And so there really ought to be a sense as we receive that we're not just receiving the tools we know that we need to notice how other people are messing up. Knowledge without love just puffs up. Rather, we're receiving the tools we need to be servants, to be helpers. And so when, when we have this heart that says, listen, I'm being equipped so that I'll know more so that I can take ownership of the weaknesses. I can take ownership of the weaknesses. I can take ownership of where there's places that people need to grow. That creates mature men, mature women. That, that creates a people like Christ in the local church. So Emmanuel, let me encourage you to shift your approach to coming to church. Not just to one that's coming to be encouraged, that's not bad, but one that's being encouraged so they can be equipped. And not just one who's learning so they can critique, but one who's learning so they can serve. And the end goal of all of that is six or 700 ministers who are actually helping the church grow to be more like a mature representation of Jesus. The pastors have a role in that, to equip and manage and lead and model, but the whole body has a role in that, to minister like Christ until the whole church is the very fullness of Christ, full of his life, full of his power, full of his authority. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We wanna ask you to please strengthen us for maturity. Please strengthen us for ministry. Please equip us for service. Please make us a people ready for good deeds. Lord, make me and our other pastors faithful to equip and manage and model and lead, but help our leadership be one that empowers and equips and strengthens others to do the ministry you've given to the entire body of Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd do this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.